Pixel Therapy is a member of the But Why Though Podcast Network. Go to butwhythopodcast.com for an inclusive geek community offering pop culture news, reviews, and podcasts. I definitely think there are content creators and streamers on Twitch whose main goal is focused in the gaming realm and more power to you. Um, but for me, it's more like the people in chat. I would die in a boss battle or, you know, get distracted from cutscenes 10 <laughs> times over to have a good conversation with the people who are choosing to give me their time and energy on a day and hang out with us. Even if that makes me like, quote unquote, like a bad gamer officially, so to speak. Um, then no such that's, thing. So be it. <laughs> Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every other week, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss the games that have made them and changed them, and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronoun she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. Let's get started, as we usually do, with our Patreon shoutouts. This is our special thank you to everyone who subscribed at our Patreon name in the credits tier for the month of February. Today, we'd like to say a big old thank you to Val, Genevieve, Lindsay, Grace, Jackie, Ben, and Pim Hatai. Remember, if you, lovely listener, want to get your name in the credits, you can hop on over to patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod, where you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month and get access to a monthly bonus episode of the show. It's just Spencer and I chatting it up for your listening pleasure. In March, our bonus episode focused on nothing other than Horizon Forbidden West. <laughs> what else is there? <laughs> <laughs> what else is there to talk about right now? Uh, but we dove deep on uh, on uh, beginner beginner combat tips and tricks. Um, yeah, Jamie for... led a very informative <laughs> clinic, a uh, gameplay clinic. It was very yeah. helpful to me. <laughs> My TED Talk. <laughs> uh, so anyway, if you're interested in checking that out, you can come on over to patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod. Um, kick in that $2 uh, a month and get access to a whole library of bonus episodes, but that one being the most recent one. And if you're a fan of what we do here on Pixel Therapy, please consider sharing us with your friends and family, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or you can't even write into the show by sending us an email at pixeltherapypod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from each and every one of you if you would like to reach out to us. Unless you're an SEO consultant, because we get plenty of those in the Ooh, inbox. A lot of those, yeah. <laughs> A lot of SEO consultants. We should start reading those on the podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what they're hoping for. All right, folks, it's time to get cozy. Pull up an armchair. Feel free to lie down on the couch. And let's talk about our feelings. Spencer, how are you? Jamie, <laughs> I'm coming at I'm coming at us all live from the road. The road Ooh. of life. Uh, it's a traveling podcast now. That's right. Um for the magic of the virtual studio, I can podcast from anywhere. And yeah. so I am podcasting from scenic Chadsford, Pennsylvania, mm. um, the home of very hilly and windy foresty roads and pretty much strip malls as far as the eye can see. Oh, very um, nice. I've learned something on this trip. Um, it's, not, it's not really a pleasure trip. It's kind of like a business, although it's personal business. <laughs> Personal business trip. A personal unpaid business trip. Um, 
and um, I've learned something. Yeah. So I'm staying in this uh, little inn, basically. Um, and uh, one of my comforts that I've become quite accustomed to at home over the past year and a half is an invention, uh, perhaps most colloquially known as the Squatty Potty. <laughs> Or oh, no. what that is <laughs> for folks who aren't familiar. Yeah, please is... paint us a visual picture. So here in America, we do this thing where we sit on a toilet, like a throne. You might call it a throne. Yeah, the porcelain throne. Some <laughs> might say, um, and it's basically like you sit in it like a chair to go to the bathroom. And um, I know that this. I've known for a long time that this is not the all the the optimal way to poop um just because like when i would visit family in the philippines it's very common like you it's more squatting to poop in some scenarios and anyway it's just like it's so much easier to poop like when i go camping you know i'll do a squat poop and it's just like everything just it's just better it's better it's better Mm -hmm, easier on mm -hmm. the colon Mm -hmm. and this is like a thing like when i've sat um, or sorry, when I was reading about a, the squatty potty, because when it came out a few years ago, it was like all the rage. You go to someone's house and they have this little stool in front of their toilet. And when you put your feet on it when you're sitting um, and it puts you in kind of like the optimal squat position for poop to just uninterruptedly flow out of your body. Um, and when we sit with our legs in like a 90 degree angle, we kind of like block up our colon and make it not as easy for the poopy to come out. Um, so I lived a lot, large part of my life doing that. And I started using the squatty potty. It changed my life, loved it. But now that I'm traveling, my hotel room doesn't have a squatty potty. Yeah. And I literally have not been able to poop for two days. Like, I'm sorry, this is such TMI. Like, I hope we've all all fostered a level of comfort with each other by now that um, you all can. I got no warning, (laughs) listeners, that this is where the conversation was going to (laughs) go when I asked my very innocuous question. Innocent question of how am I? How are you doing? <laughs> uh, well, the answer is constipated as hell. This is how I'm doing. Well, then, well, so I have a resolution to share with everyone, okay. which is that just this morning, just before I hopped on the horn with, with you, my friend, mm-hmm. I um I did a makeshift squatty potty. There was there happened to be this little recycling bin that I found in the closet of my hotel mm-hmm. room. And so I repurposed that uh, for my task and it worked great mm-hmm. i was able to surpass this challenge <laughs> and i'm feeling a lot better now <laughs> oh, you know i'm just so happy for you that's so, really great we need to but- invent a travel squatty potty because i think it's needed now that i've i can't go back really yeah yeah do you have a squatty potty I don't. Well, you need to get no. one. I'll get you one. Just keep, I do, a, we do have keep a an bidet. eye out. <laughs> oh, big Just, bidet fan myself. Yeah, this is sim- similarly something you don't want to tr- you don't want to travel without. We need a travel bidet as well. Absolutely. Um, it's just so much better and cleaner and like mm-hmm. easier. Uh, I don't know how I live without that either. Now that I have a septic tank, mm-hmm. <laughs> no, this is just riveting podcasting, but uh, can't put a ton of, ton of stuff down that thing. So a bidet yeah. is like, you know, save, saves the environment, saves paper, yeah. saves, tr- save a tree, use a bidet. Yeah. Save a tree and your beehole. That's right. That's right. 
Yep. Um, how are you? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, <laughs> I think I'm, uh, I'm still recovering from the fact that this is where we <laughs> took the podcast, uh, just right out the gate, just <laughs> like the open road was ahead of us. You <laughs> yanked the wheel real hard. Listen, regular <laughs> daily bowel movements are a cornerstone of health. You know how healthy you are based on the quality of your movements. And so this is really just a PSA for everyone. Um, you know, take care of that colon health and treat your butt good. Amen. <laughs> Thank you for taking us on that journey. You're welcome. Um, are you playing? What are you playing? What, is, <laughs> what video games are you playing? <laughs> Jamie's like, I don't, I don't even have capacity to tell you how I am. Let's just move on. That's fine. <laughs> so, you know, there's been a lot of podcasts with multiple episodes dedicated to Elden Ring. And Jamie and I have been in a, you know, in a world of our own um, with a little game that you might not have heard of since it's been completely <laughs> overshadowed by <laughs> Elden Ring. Um, but that game is Gorilla's uh, Horizon Forbidden West, a sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we've been it's a long open world game. And so uh, we, we sort of introed uh, the discussion, the last episode where we were talking a bit about our initial impressions of the game at first getting into it. Now uh, we both have sunk over 50 hours into the game. Myself, I'm at around like mid fifties, maybe even early sixties. I can't remember the last time I looked in terms of hours. Mm-hmm. And Jamie, you have. I, I forgot to pull the number before coming on, but it's certainly over 80 mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, last I checked, so and, and I've I fully finished the game, finished the game story, and and popped the platinum just last night. Nice. So feeling very accomplished and mm-hmm. proud of myself, as you should. <laughs> they should send people physical medals when you platinum a game. It's like <laughs> that might, you be, can a, might be a, a bridge too far. They do. They do occasionally uh, send out like special uh, like avatars and stuff if you. If you uh, platinum a game. So that's nice. nice. That's always a nice little gifty. They PlayStation will send those out every once in a while Mm. for various first party games. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm maybe three quarters through on on your estimation based that I shared with Jamie where I'm where I currently am in the game. Um, And I've definitely uh, I think my uh, experience with the game has definitely deepened and I've, uh, you know, gained more confidence in my in my gameplay and um yeah i think we just are in a place where we're able to have more of a maybe your more more review style i'll say review style conversation because <laughs> what we do is a bit more yeah uh, a cry from a traditional <laughs> review but yeah uh, this is basically we know that we can't uh although we would probably enjoy we can't just inundate y'all with the rise in forbidden west for the next uh, several months so this is kind of going to be our conversation to put a pin in uh how we feel about the game whether or not we recommend folks play it um and talking about some kind of the broader uh themes and mechanics and gameplay loop and relationships um this there this will be a spoiler free conversation today uh, we're kind of banding around the idea of potentially doing a spoiler cast, just like a special episode um, or something when Spencer actually gets through the story, um, yeah. because I, we know we're going to want to talk about it. So maybe we'll just turn the mics on <laughs> and, and release that for you. But for now, this is kind of our our conversation about our overall thoughts and feelings of Horizon Forbidden West and whether or not folks should check it out. So, Spencer, with where you're at in the game, what's standing out to you? 
How do you feel about yes. Rise of Forbidden West? So something like so okay, so there's these there's weapons, of course, that you can collect armor um and resources throughout the game. And there's also these special tools that you get access to through ex- just proceeding through the story and then having certain new areas unlocked to you. Um, now that you're asking me this question, I, I am sort of like, like, I feel like I'm 40 plus, like 40 plus hours into the game before unlocking like four of the like seven of these uh, special tools that you get access mm. to. And I was sort of just like, like even though Horizon is a very open world game, the fact that really much of the map is inaccessible to you until you're three quarters of the way through the game is sort of like an interesting choice. Um, yeah, but it's like all of a sudden at like forty hours in, you get like three tools in somewhat rapid succession that unlock most of the explorable map areas um, in all of the areas preceding the point that you are at when you get them. Um, all I have to say is that at this point in the game, um, something that I've been really excited about is getting these tools that allow for new ways of traversal. Um, and one of those things is uh, essentially a um, machine part forage diving mask that Aloy can wear and be underwater indefinitely. Um, as someone who gets very stressed out by underwater uh, gameplay areas where you have a breath bar that's depleting, um, and a person who swims at a, a like stress-inducingly slow <laughs> and realistic pace, uh, especially when surfacing. Um, I was I was I had very very sweaty palms through a lot of the earlier sequences of the game because there were there were areas where you maybe need to sneak uh, and avoid being detected while also going through underwater portions where you don't even really know where you are and kind of still trying to navigate and figure, find your way out of somewhere and those mm-hmm. underwater sections. Um, that's like very scary to me. So yeah. having this mask and just having that stress taken away, first of all, and also employing this totally new to horizon, like like this whole these vast underwater exploration areas um, that feel like an entirely new dimension to the game. Like I, I'm I'm blown away by the um, just underwater world building and kind mm-hmm. of what. The, the areas, what they look like, and the thought and detail put into these beautiful uh, underwater scenes. Um, and also just the almost like, I don't know what, it almost reminds me of um, like playing Echo the Dolphin on the Sega Genesis or playing um, even like uh, Legend of Zelda, I think Ocarina of Time is the one I'm thinking of where there's um, like a lot of swimming and underwater levels and, and kind of puzzle traversal like Mm -hmm. it felt almost like it touched something almost nostalgic in me i i really love the underwater sections of the game um was and i'll leave it i'll pass it over to you if there's anything (laughs) you want to add there (laughs) yeah no i i agree and i think it's it's so rare (laughs) i think the iconic underwater section that i always think back on that i that i think initiated or at least exposed that fear of of under, uh, there's something creepy about underwater sections yeah. in games, like by and large, even if they're not intending to be creepy. Mm-hmm. I think some some of the ones that are iconic that stand out to me, I remember playing Crash Bandicoot Warped mm. and those underwater levels, especially the areas where the eels would pop out of the holes mm. and grab you or the sharks uh, were swimming or the pokey fish and you kind of had to avoid all of those things as you maneuvered through. Mm-hmm. Um, 
always really like kind of creeped me out, stressed me out as a, as a kid playing yeah. them. Then there's uh, kind of the, the underwater sections in Shadow of the Colossus and mm. and trying to get on the back of a creature that is swimming through the water to mm. try to kill it and knowing it's it's going to go down deep and trying not to drown as you like navigate that whole process and manage yourself. Like underwater sections tend to be like the best ones, the ones that stick with me are the ones that, that did kind of creep me out a little bit yeah. too. Um, the Assassin's Creed games have long had underwater sections in the games and I've always kind of found them kind of dull. I don't think they mm. control super well. And I think it's just tough to, it, it has been historically tough for game developers to make underwater sections that feel fun to play mm. and are conveying like a fun atmosphere. Like I yes. think you, the good ones tend to be ones that are a little stressful. And so mm-hmm. that's not necessarily fun, but it's engaging. And then the ones that try to make it fun, I've always just been like, yeah, but I just kind of move slow and clunky and I can't really steer my character. Yeah. And right. I think Horizon Forbidden West uh, has both the, it's, I still don't know if the underwater sections were like my favorite part of the game, but it's the best underwater gameplay that I've experienced that could both, it, it could be fun. It could be magical. There were so many times where you're in an underwater area and you're just like, I was kind of blown away by the, like the beauty of the art and the mm-hmm. world that was underneath the surface of the water that I could, I could find by going underwater. Um, Actually, just yesterday in, in my quest to platinum the game, encountered a cauldron, which mm. are the big uh, machine factories that are kind of like dungeons almost that you go into, the machine building factories. And I encountered a cauldron that was mostly underwater. Mm. And so navigating that mostly underwater, it, it, it was just, it was beautiful. It was so cool. It was such a fun experience. And I mm-hmm. think that it's rare to, that I find myself saying that about a one underwater experience in the game. But I, I think Aloy controls in a, in a fairly precise way while still feeling like she's actually swimming. Yes. And the art is beautiful and they do put machines in the water with you in certain segments to lend to a feeling of trepidation Mm -hmm. and, and stress. But I never felt uh, because there's no underwater combat. So they don't ask you to actually fight with the machines. You have to just kind of stealth around them. Um, And I think that all it, it, they did it in a sparse enough way that I was not getting frustrated with it. It wasn't like, yeah. oh my God, so now I've got to sit here and wait for this machine to pass me by. Like It felt appropriately dangerous without feeling like it was slowing me down to the point of frustration. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, I just think they struck a really good balance with it. And it's it's certainly the best that I've seen in recent games trying to provide an underwater section. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, I think as you're like alluding to too, it's like being underwater can be inherently like claustrophobic and just Mm -hmm. stressful because as humans, it's unnatural that we are completely submerged and for an indefinite amount of time. And so I think too, there was a little bit of, I felt at times that the music was almost borrowing from Jaws. Like when, especially (laughs) in the scenes where you were, there were machines swimming around, you'd hear like, Donna, 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 like, uh, and I kind (laughs) of, like I, I don't know. It was almost like tongue in cheek a little bit. Like it was Uh like, I never felt um, too scared. Like I, 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 yeah, like just everything about how combat wasn't really taking place underwater. It was mainly just a new way of experiencing the world. I found incredibly enjoyable and something you touched on that really uh, reminded me of something I've been feeling is I too have felt blown away by the detail and just uh, beauty of the underwater sections of the game. And as you're traversing on your journey in this open world, there are lots of bodies of water, like rivers, ocean mm-hmm. areas, lakes. Um, 
And I mean, you could go through the entire game without really going underwater and, and exploring that deeply. And, and you can have a fine experience with the game. I think there's something mysterious and uh, almost like romantic about this idea that there's a whole other half of the map that's just laying beneath the surface mm-hmm. waiting for you to discover it. And mm-hmm. for the players who do, you know, now that you have this tool, go back and explore those areas. There's such payoff and beauty waiting for you, mm-hmm. but the game never like forces you to engage with that. And so I just think that's something so cool about this almost complete other world that's within this game, just like waiting to be discovered. It's just like, uh, like the deep sea in our real life. Like there's like so yeah. much more that we don't even know about. Um, and we could live our whole lives never knowing. And I don't know, it's just like a really cool thing yeah. in this game that I wasn't really expecting the, the, just how fully realized it is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, what else is, what else is sticking out for you? How are you feeling about the battles? I know we, sp- we obviously, as I, as I referenced in our, uh, in our, a Patreon episode mm-hmm. this month. We really dove deep on the combat mechanics. So I don't think, you know, I think if you want that really deep dive in how the combat mechanics work and how we're engaging with them, I would say go check that Patreon episode out. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, you know, generally, uh, you know, you've, you've put a lot more time in since we recorded that episode. How are you feeling now about combat mechanics, weapons, uh, fighting machines, fighting humans, all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So, um, Thank you. <laughs> I definitely feel like I'm in a much better place than I was in my first two, you know, first dozen hours with the game. Um, I think I've really learned that elemental combat is super important in this game. As mm-hmm. you, as you told me, like, um, <laughs> like each, so you're fighting, there's machine battles and then there's human battles. And uh, when you're, and each machine or human that you can scan them with this uh, tool that you have that lets you uh, like learn more about the environment and around you and has data that it can give you like a little, like a Google glass, Google glasses basically (laughs) um, or a Bluetooth um, that can scan things. But um, it'll tell you like this machine is strong against fire, but it's weak to acid. And so if you have an acid weapon, you're going to want to hit it with that because once you've hit it with that, enough times and expose its weakness hitting it with other weapons that do damage it'll it'll like quadruple like it it gets exponentially more hits in and you can down machines much faster than just trying to blunt force your way through it mm-hmm. um so i think like i'm definitely understanding and becoming more successful in the combat uh mm-hmm. at this point um i am finding that i'm still needing to work like sort of readjust difficulty levels and stuff just because um there's it's just very frenetic combat um and and you have to be very precise in hitting weak points uh, it's just something i struggle with um i will say too that understanding the sort of weapon color coding system really unlocked a lot for me as well i think th- there's so many weapons that you can purchase and and use in the game but really to be successful you have to pay attention to the rarity of the weapon so the weapons Mm -hmm. are given different grades like if it's uncommon it's kind of like uh entry-level weapon and going all the way up to rare very rare legendary status um and so i feel like when i 
honestly, when I stop looking at the number, like literally the stats of the weapon and just look mm-hmm. at the rarity and what type of ammo it had, mm-hmm. I was much more successful. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think there's a sort of user experience design question there of like, we, I think the, J, the game, the Jame, the Jamie, the, I don't know why, the game could have done a better job just sort of contextualizing what you should be paying attention to with the weapons that you buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not even about like uh, the look of the weapon or uh, like the, like the lore around, like, like each weapon will be like this it was made for this purpose and it was mm-hmm. is used by the people who live in this area. And it sort of makes you think like, Oh, if I'm in the icy area, I should use the weapon built by the, the people who live in the icy. Area. And it, like, it's just like, you got to disregard all of that and basically yeah. just look at what type of ammo it has and what its rarity level is. And so if I had known that earlier and understood the outsized importance of those things, I think I would have had a better time. But mm-hmm. I just think there's a little bit of, for the, for how important the weapon types and ammo specifically types are to the success in battle, I think there could have been a little bit more structure and framing and helping users more easily understand uh, what to look out for in with weaponry. Yeah. But that being said, I, I have been a lot more successful in the machine battles, um, and I know you t- uh, too wanted to touch a bit on the human battles. Um, but before mm-hmm. we go into that, uh, was there anything you wanted to add to the machine discussion? No, I mean I. I agree with a lot of your uh, critiques of the the way they share information about how the weapons work. I don't think they did it in a in a manner that was especially clear. I think this game, if if it has a super clear fault that it makes, it's that in 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 a lot of areas it provides. Well, it's both it both what makes it I think really good and what you can critique about the game, which is that in a lot of ways, Horizon Forbidden West is an expanded and uh, like more deep version of Horizon Zero Dawn Mm. in in so many ways. There's aspects of the narrative that feel like an expansion of that original narrative. Mm -hmm. What I mean is like taking a lot of the same beats and maybe even some similar plot points and then adding to those making it more, making it bigger. The world is bigger, there's more. The skill tree is bigger, there's more. The weapons, there's it's bigger, there's more. There's more upgrades. And so they added a lot of depth. Um, but I think in in adding so much, there's areas where they lost clarity mm-hmm. or where it can feel like a bit of a retread when we talk about things like the narrative. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of ways, like I think that this is a better game than Horizon Zero Dawn, and I really like this game, but I also think there was a more straightforward simplicity to some of what Zero Dawn did. Yes, that this game could could do with a little bit more, give just giving you more ways to kind of cut through the bullshit mm-hmm. and making things a little bit clearer. And I think in one area where they they kind of mess that up is in all of the stuff that they added to the weapon system. Yeah, because you both, it's not just that you have a more variety of weapons. It's that you have more variety of tiers and more variety of upgrades. And it's just, it's too much without Mm -hmm. explaining to you how any of those things actually affect your combat. So I agree with all of that feed that, that critique. I think it's apt. Um, I think once you get to the point that you do understand how it works, the game really opens up and Mm. the machine combat is a ton of fun. It's just as much fun as it was in zero dawn. 
I do think it's made more challenging. And I think some of that has to do with because they're giving you so many different options and, and they want you to kind of experiment and explore and figure out what works where. And that hit for me and I enjoyed it, but I think they, they make the, the learning curve a bit too steep mm, to actually yes. get there and understand how all of that works. And maybe they, if they just, if it's, I don't know if it's tutorialization or just giving you more information in the menus, but just kind of, bring that curve down a little bit so mm-hmm. that and give people some some help early on understanding what matters and and how they should it, or even telling them that they should be exper- experimenting and trying different things i don't know um and then when it comes to the human combat this was a a common critique with zero dawn was that the human combat was like <laughs> nowhere near as fun as the machine combat and they made a lot of changes to the human combat in this game they've really um made melee combat much more Mm. robust and i think the changes that they made to melee combat were good like you have a lot more different moves that you can do with your spear uh Mm -hmm. they've added this thing where you can kind of build up power on your spear and then hit someone and attach kind of a power orb to them and then hit that with an arrow and then that'll explode and do Mm. a lot of damage these are fun developments but at the end of the day i personally don't like fighting with my spear is not my first choice I don't think that that is the, given the vast number of different uh, ranged tools that you have at your disposal, the idea that someone would come into this game and be like, I'm going to melee all the way. (laughs) I don't know. I guess you could want to do that, but I just don't think that that's what the game's primarily designed for. And I Mm. don't think that's a fun way to play the game Mm -hmm. personally. And you're missing out on a ton of variety if you just want to go in there and hack and slash. Yeah. And and then the human enemies... (laughs) They tried to make them more difficult, but I feel like all they really did was make them spongier. Wait, what's like, that mean? Like they can just absorb so much damage uh, before they go down. Yeah. And and for me, it's it's a little bit of immersion breaking mm. because I just fought a fucking grizzly bear robot and managed to take that thing down with like <laughs> some skill and precision. Mm-hmm. And now this like five and a half foot tall human wearing like just a helmet and yeah. no shirt or armor mm-hmm. is running at me and I have to like taking I, 10 arrows to the chest taking 10 <laughs> arrows to the chest before they go down and I was just like it just kind of breaks it for me a little bit and I don't find that I have fun with the human combat the good news is that by and large you can avoid human combat in this game there's a handful of story uh, missions that require it but for the most part you can leave it the hell alone however for the platinum I was required to go do uh, there's there's rebel outposts mm. all throughout the map that you can go fight, and they're basically just like bases that you can kind of go into, almost Far Cry style, and you have to take down the leader and do a bit of research. And the Platinum did require me to do a certain number of those. Not all of them, thank God, because <laughs> there's a lot of them. Yeah. You just have to do a set number of them. But it was the one of the only times that I felt like super frustrated with the game mm-hmm. in trying to achieve that Platinum, which again was an optional thing that I was forcing myself to do, but it just really... Uh, made stark for me how much I don't enjoy the human combat in the game. And I'd really be fine with that just never being a thing we had to do again in these games. Like, if the humans are just generally your allies and we don't have to fight mm-hmm. humans ever mm-hmm. again, I would really be okay with that. Yeah, that resonates. Like, uh, the human battles definitely, like, it feels like the humans are stronger than the machines and it <laughs> yeah. doesn't really make sense. Even the, um, like I am someone who enjoys taking a ranged approach to 
outposts like that, like sneaking around, trying to pick off as many people as I can from a long distance with a with a long shot uh, bow, which is like a strong long distance um, bow. Almost like a sniper bow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a sniper bow. And you get to a point where the one I have, uh, when you upgrade it enough, there's also an added um, bonus uh, bonus damage multiplier if you mm. are shooting people from a distance of over 30 meters away. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I really, that's kind of my approach. But the way that this game is, is like a lot of the people wear these heavy helmets. And so you've got to shoot off the helmet that, and then it doesn't even do damage yet. And then you've got to try to headshot them when they're all now moving around and alert. Um, and I honestly feel like the headshot precision is almost like unrealistically precise. Like you have to shoot them in the temple. If you shoot like on the upper neck or whatever, it, it doesn't take. And you're just kind of like, really? Like if someone was shot in the neck, they would not still be standing <laughs> yeah. right now. Like that's basically the same as a headshot. Come yeah, on now. Come on. <laughs> like, and yeah, yeah, it does just kind of feel almost like it's just uh, unnecessarily hard i I don't know yeah it it just feels like it's the difficulty is inflated just to try to make those battles more interesting or longer and and honestly i just kind of felt like i should be able to take the vast majority of these people out with relative ease i definitely i i feel like i probably died more at the hands of humans Mm -hmm. than i did machines in the game yeah which i just think is i think that's a problem i Mm -hmm. don't know Mm -hmm. uh for the human enemies to be that that challenging and also not be fun because I'm not getting to like pick off certain pieces of the human enemies in the same way that I can with the machines. They're just visually less interesting. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's something that's like mostly avoidable, so I don't really knock the game too much for it, but I, I would love to see them try to make some big changes before what I believe, I believe there will be a third game Mm -hmm. in the series based on the way the story plays out. And so, uh, yeah, I don't yeah, know. I think too, a lot of the human combat can feel like herding cats. It's like, you've got to clear out an area, but mm-hmm. the humans are so small and they move so fast that often it's like, okay, I've, I've cleaned out most of this area. It's telling me there's one or two more people. And I just keep turning on my focus, scanning wildly around me, trying to find the last like stragglers. And it mm-hmm. just kind of just, it doesn't, it starts to feel tedious and not flowing in the way that machine combat does and, and, so. and also kind of incongruous with who Aloy is as a character I, know. <laughs> I just don't like the idea that she's going and like murking these whole faces yeah. of people I, I don't know I, right. yeah. it, it's it's again it's immersion breaking overall mm-hmm. for me for a lot of different reasons um, let's talk a bit about the overall gameplay loop which I don't I don't think we discussed too much so in our last episode um, our last public episode we kind of broke down the basics of the story but in terms of the gameplay loop of the game, the way a lot of the the missions work, at least for the first two thirds to three quarters of the game, is that the the game actually gives you a base that you operate out of, which I thought was a really cool addition. And a lot of your companions are available in this space mm. so that you can go up to them and have conversations in between the different missions in the game. I thought that was a really uh, important and appreciated adjustment to the original game i think uh both in zero dawn and in forbidden west you meet a lot of interesting characters and so Mm. i think kind of pulling everyone into one place 
where you can come back in and periodically check in with them on how things are going and what's going on with them. And there's updated dialogue every time you visit. I thought that was really cool. It reminded me a lot of the Mass Effect series and the way that in between missions, you can kind of go through your ship and everybody has like a set location where you know where to find them and you just go up to them and talk to them and you can kind of catch up on what's been going on with them. They catch up on what's going on with you. And it really made the companions and the relationships in the game. I think it gave them a lot more weight than Mm. they had in, in Zero Dawn. Still don't think it quite hits the levels of how I feel about characters in Mass Effect. Uh, And I would attribute some of that to the fact that, by and large, your companions don't go on missions with you. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see that adjustment get made for the third game. Um, I know it's like basically a trope at this point to like bring like NPC characters along with the main character on a mission. But I just feel like if I had more opportunity to spend more time with the companions um, and it wasn't just like me basically going to them for a data dump right. when I felt like having those conversations. I think that could have really helped those relationships feel more real. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really make sense to me that Aloy is just always out in the world running around doing things on her own, especially yeah. when like a core theme of the game seems to be her learning how to accept help. Yes. Um. So I felt like they kind of missed the mark there, but I really appreciated what they were trying to pull from Mass Effect there. And and the game even gives you companion quests, mm-hmm. which is another thing that kind of pulled straight from Mass Effect 2, um, where folks who played that game might know that they have what they call loyalty missions in Mass Effect 2, which is actually that as you build up a relationship with a companion character, you get to a point where you unlock their loyalty quest, which is a dedicated quest line that's just to do with something that's important to them. And in Mass Effect, those are those are like some of the best missions in the entire game. Mm. Horizon tries to ape that, but doesn't quite get there. The mm. side quests that they did with the companions, I thought were were good. They were some of the better missions in the game. But again, it just still doesn't quite hit. The other reason I think they don't quite hit, and I'm curious to know what you think about this, is that we don't get to craft Aloy at all, right? Like we're not making dialogue decisions. Even mm. when we're going and talking to the companions, we're we're just working through a, a set tree of dialogue. Yeah. And we're not really deciding what we're gonna say or how we're gonna respond to things. You I don't think it's a spoiler to say like there's no romance options in this game either. So you're not really getting to decide who Layla is or how mm-hmm. she's relating to these characters. You're just getting to watch it. And I think that key difference between Mass Effect, where you are the player character and you're supposed to infuse yourself into them and be making decisions in the dialogue and stuff when you're talking to characters. I don't know. I think I think that key decision like creates a little bit of a disconnect, and I don't quite feel. I don't know. I, I like the companions in this game, but I also don't feel like I'm so invested in them. Yeah, I I hear that, and I I think you know there is a mechanic where in uh there is a dialogue mechanic where in some situations you can choose. You have three uh, types of emotions that you can respond with. You can give an answer that's logical. You can give an answer that um, that they have, each have icons. So that the logical answer is like a little brain. The um, sort of callous, strong arm answer shows like a like a someone's arm like flexing. And then there's a, a heart icon, which is like a more emotional, empathetic response. Um, and it's like so that's included in the game, but it's in such rare like there's only maybe a Super handful rare. of times that it comes up. Mm-hmm. And and so for a game that 
course. And, and, and all the choices are kind of the same thing, right? It's like you're, right. you're like coloring in the language, but it, like yes. you're not making a decision. Like yes. Aloy's decision is still Aloy's decision, and you're mm-hmm. just kind of deciding how you want her to like what how emotion she's you want her to bring to yeah. a response. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so there's like there's it could like that could be built upon and expanded and allow you to kind of inhabit more or decide more about the type of person Aloy could be, and it's just sort of. Um, confusing to me for all of the effort that's put into creating these very detailed, very emotive, um, very like realized characters. Um, I mean, they, they all look like oh, they look entirely awesome. unique people and yeah. uh, down to the, the expressiveness of this game, mm-hmm. like the micro expressions you see flitting across people's faces, the, the way the light shines in their eyes, like they feel like real people. Mm-hmm. So it's just an interesting choice that they went through the effort of creating the the most beautiful and fully realized NPCs I've ever seen in any game and yet keep you at arm's length just through the function of of the dialogue and and being so locked into and and sort of separated from who Aloy is. Well, it's like Aloy keeps everyone around her at arm's length and it's like mm. by extension I feel like the game keeps them at arm's length mm. and I don't I don't quite know what needs to change to make that feel more like I'm getting to know them as the player and I'm building a deep relationship with them, but Aloy is not Mm. because Mm. like Aloy by default tends to keep everyone at arm's length. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a core tenet of her character. I think that's part of who she is because she feels like she has this immense responsibility to save the world. I think she doesn't think that anybody else can really truly help her with that because she's genetically the person who can do it. Uh, based on her being this clone of Elizabeth Sobeck. Mm-hmm. So she holds everybody at arm's length, but like, I'm still here <laughs> behind Aloy's eyes, like listening <laughs> to these conversations. And I think Aloy does like feel a deep affection for these people, even if she's not willing to show it. I think the game alludes that, that that's there. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just weird. I don't, I don't know what they need to change there to make them feel. <laughs> To make me feel like more invested in them or make, because I don't know. Yeah, I think maybe having, so something that I liked in Tales of Arise is, um, that was a JRPG that came out late last year. I'm like, what is time? Yeah, like last fall. Um, And in that game, it's like. Um, every time you spoke to a companion, so there were these scenes where you could rest at campfires and then you could choose which of your companions you wanted to talk to. And, and occasionally they'd have new dialogue options, but every time you did that, there would be sort of this invisible, um, like friendship meter that would fill. And after enough conversations, um, you sort of unlock, you know, different cutscenes, uh, and, and like the game indicates to you, it's like, you're growing closer to this person. You're, you're, you've reached max friendship with this person. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't anything where like it ever led to romance options or anything like that. But I think just even that simple added layer of feedback that like you've grown closer to this person. Yeah. It just gave me a little bit more. Um, so I don't, I just feel like if there was maybe more of those options of which emotion you want to respond with and just, just even giving you the feeling of being a little bit more in control, I I think that would help. Um, and, and maybe just, mm, I don't know. No, I think that's, I think that's spot on. I think that would, I think 
I think the nut of this issue is that it doesn't feel like my decision to engage with the characters on a frequent basis is giving me access to anything different than I would have otherwise. Yeah. Like I don't, it doesn't feel like the relationship is deepening. Yeah. And it should, right? Right. It should feel like the relationship is deepening. Um, it, or, or even the the side, the companion missions that open up, they open up based on your level and where you're at in the story, not based on how much you've engaged with that character. Mm. I, I think that's, that's what, that's the problem that they need to solve for. Yes. Because if I'm going and talking to this character every time and I'm making a decision to engage, it shouldn't feel like I'm just getting, it should feel like our relationship is deepening mm-hmm. in some real way. And not just that, well, we're at this point in the story. So now this character can tell you ABC and later in the story, they'll tell you X, Y, Z, but that has nothing to do with how much you've talked to them. And the dialogue options are going to be the same based on where you're at in the story, regardless I think you nailed one, it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you nailed it. You're the one that, you're the one that articulated it. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. We nailed it. <laughs> All right. We, we got to push through here. I think there's one more thing that we really want to touch on before we give kind of our final perspectives of the game. And that is, uh, yeah, we wanted to talk a bit about Ailey as a character and her, uh, well, we just kind of talked about how you as the player have relationships mm-hmm. with the companions, but specifically talking about Ailey's relationship with her companions and some of the themes that are drawn out that process so (laughs) how do you feel about Aloy so Aloy has very charged interactions with her companions and I think it's something that I was like am I I crazy because but I talked to Jamie about it and she was like no I've seen that too and I know that uh, we're not the only ones but it seems like particularly with her male friends um there's this suffocating, overwhelming weight of tension that overshadows every conversation that is had. And I, I would say it's particularly with uh, her companions, um, Avad, uh, Erend, mm-hmm. uh, for, for the beginning of the game, Varl, who's someone who becomes much more of a trusted friend and confidant, which I was happy to see. Um, And even some other men that she just encounters, like, I often feel like the game, uh, like, understandably, like, you, like, you are supposed to feel that Aloy is this, like, stunningly beautiful warrior who's incredibly strong. And so she appeals to people in this culture, both as someone who's incredibly capable and strong at hunting machines, but also doesn't realize how gorgeous she is and that any man would be honored to be with her and are pining over her desperately. And it's something where because of the level of detail in lovingly creating these characters and making them fully fleshed out and realized, you can honestly feel in, especially in cutscenes, the, the way that these men feel like they can barely contain the strength of their feeling for her. <laughs> and Aloy is just completely either oblivious or is just completely uninterested in engaging in, in yeah, that Yeah, I'd part. say actively put off for the and, most part yeah, in this game. Scenarios like, I think in yeah. Zero Dawn, there were instances where it played more as obliviousness. Mm-hmm. But in this game, I think uh, pretty much across the board, 
Um, if she thinks there's even a whiff of this, this uh, guy might be into me, she becomes, I think, pretty cold. And, and that yes. the way that she holds tends to hold people at a distance, I think becomes even more exacerbated and dramatic to the point where I think particularly with the, the dynamic with Aaron, uh, it, it in many instances almost feels like she is annoyed with him mm-hmm. and frustrated by what I think is so clearly his, his like deep love for her and attraction mm-hmm. to her. And I, I don't know, they in particular have a very odd dynamic to me because yeah. I think even from the first time that they interact in the game, early in the game, when you first run into Aaron and he's kind of like, he's very upset with Aloy for leaving uh, the party that happens mm-hmm. at the end of the first game and not telling him where she was going. I think it's really clear from that very first scene that there's this deep undertone of Aaron being in love with her, mm-hmm. knowing that she doesn't love him back, and mm-hmm. f- he feeling like he doesn't deserve for him to love him yeah. back, and that he's a piece of shit. Like, yeah. Aaron feels like he is a piece of shit. As somebody who has often felt like I'm a piece of shit, I see it <laughs> very clearly. But then the way that manifests is he kind of follows Aloy around in this really, like, sad sack, yeah. uh, like, lost puppy sort of energy that's very desperate. Mm-hmm. Like he brings a lot of desperation to their interactions. And I kind of, I don't know. I l- enjoy the drama of it, mm-hmm. but I also just feel like I, I, they, because the game never articulates it clearly, yes. like neither character ever clearly articulates how they feel about the other one. And mm. this is all subtext that I'm just picking up on as someone who has watched these dynamics play out in real life. I just am really curious if Gorilla is doing this intentionally or yeah. not. Like, I, I'm so confused and curious. Well, it's like for a game that made the choice to not include romantic subplots mm-hmm. and options and, and is very clear that is not an option. It is, I am just dying to understand why they filled every person to person interaction with so much emotional weight that as the player, you start to feel uncomfortable watching cutscenes because you feel like these characters are about to explode out with something that they cannot say. And it's just like, okay, why did you take romance options off the table if you were going to psychologically and emotionally torture us for the rest of the game? Like, it almost was like the developers and artists were like, well, we want romantic. We wanted romantic so possibly available. So we're going to pack as much as we possibly yeah. can into these cutscenes so that players can create their own narratives happening off screen. Like that's how painfully obvious it is. Yeah. Um, I, it's just a wild choice. And I think it's interesting too to contrast that with how Aloy interacts um, with the women in her life. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, I think, Jamie, was speaking on it a bit earlier, do you want to kind of say how you interpret sort of how Aloy reacts to her women yeah. counterparts in contrast? Well, I just think, and and this, uh, it's it's not exclusive to women because I think, well, anyway, for, for the vast majority of the, of the women that Aloy interacts with in the game, uh, she is much more quickly and immediately warm to them. Mm-hmm. The game shows her in animations like touch, like putting her hand on their shoulders, mm-hmm. like looking them deeply in the eyes. Like mm-hmm. she is uh, much more empathetic to their situation, offering them like speaking more emotionally with them mm-hmm. and offering them emotional advice or attending to their emotions more directly in a way that she really isn't with her male counterpart, especially again, you know, I bring up Aaron and he's obviously like very sad and depressed and Aloy does not 
engage with any of that. She speaks to him like much more surface level, talking more about like what they're going to do next, the plan um, and what his role in that will be rather than being like, Hey bud, like I can see you're having a tough time. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. She does not offer him any of that kind of emotional support that she gives very freely and willingly, even to uh, women characters that she's just met. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the one hand, I'm like, well, are they trying to suggest that Ayla is perhaps queer? Like, is she in, like, is she romantically interested in women? But they also, I don't know, none of none of her interactions with with men or women feel uh, like sexually charged to me at all. Right. Like, I don't feel like she's actually attracted to anyone. She yeah. just seems to be bonding more closely with the women characters. And then, as you alluded to, Varl, which kind of happens after. I think the game makes a clear decision with Varl's character to very clearly tell us Varl is not interested in Aloy and Mm -hmm. Aloy learns that information as well, like not romantically interested in her. And they, once that information is revealed, Aloy becomes much warmer to Varl. Like her and Varl actually develop one of, I think the best friendships and relationships in the game. Yes. uh, That the game puts on display for us. There's an instant release of, of tension. tension. Yes. And so to me, that all kind of suggests that she's aware that a lot of, men are interested in her romantically and she does not want them to be. Mm-hmm. And until she can like draw that clear line and understand that they're not interested in her romantically, it's hard for her to engage with men. Um, she doesn't seem to have that same issue with women, but I don't, again, I don't know that that's because she's romantically interested in women. And I just, I wonder if they're, to me, it seems like they could be building Aloy up to be an asexual character. Mm-hmm. But again, they don't they don't articulate any of this right. stuff. And Aloy doesn't articulate any of this stuff. And it's really hard to know, like, are they just doing this because Aloy is very mission driven and she knows she's on this mission to save the world and she doesn't have time for it? Is that what they're trying to convey? Or are they actually trying to convey that? I would just think, like, if this was a person who just didn't have time for it, mm-hmm. there would still be some pining. There would be right. like some, oh, man, I'm really into this person. but. Mm-hmm fuck, I don't have time. I've got to save the world. Mm-hmm. And we don't get any of that. And so it's really hard to know which direction they're playing with this. And I really wish they would kind of, I don't know, it just feels like they need to make a decision and actually have that articulated. Yeah. Rather than having kind of all of these questions and like subtle hints about the way Aloy interacts with people. I think I think we need to be a little bit more direct at this point. We're two games in. We spent the whole first game coming out of it kind of having this similar like is Aloy supposed to be asexual or is she just not, is everyone mm-hmm. just horny for her and she's not into it because she's on a mission mm-hmm. and that continued through this game. And I feel like we need to, we, it, we need yeah. to address this in some way, probably. Yeah. Cause if she is, if that's just honestly that she's aromantic or asexual and that that's just who she is, like I would love to see a game just fully embrace that and be comfortable with it instead mm-hmm. of making it seem like, that it's the result of some sort of negative, like, oh, well, she's just, she's like this because of her trauma being raised in isolation, or she's like this because she's just too busy and dedicated to the mission. It's like, it's almost like, oh, like, like this inherent negative insinuation that's asexualness or aromanticism is a result of something bad going on or that there's something Mm. wrong with you or that you're unable to access a certain part of yourself. It's like, no, like if that's who she is, like let's celebrate that. And let's, you know, like, like let's acknowledge that as part of her character. Let's not do this dance where we're torturing all of our non-playable characters and, and we're all like just 
wondering how we're supposed to feel about Aloy. Like it, it is a strange choice. And I'd, I'd love, I too would love to see some definitive direction on that. Um, Cause it would be really cool they, if she, if she just, you know, if we have this asexual representation. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think it'd be great. I, and I would fully support them making that decision. I also think like they, they could justify her just holding it everyone arm's length because of how she feels it. Like, I think they can make this work yeah. in any direction they want to yeah. make it work. And I'm, I'm okay with it. I think it'd be really cool to see an Acer arrow character in a game. That'd be fucking awesome. But even if they didn't take it that direction, I think they can make it work. I just, they just need to articulate it. I think part mm-hmm. of the problem is we don't get as players, nobody gets, but we as players should be getting, I think some insight at this point into Aloy's <laughs> interior life. And I don't think the game, either game gives us that unfortunately yeah and so i think players like you and i who really want that and seek it we end up picking up on these bread crumbs mm-hmm. basically that the game throws at us these like tiny little clues that maybe we could piece together to get some sense of aloy's interior and i thought the way this game opened uh with so many of her friends coming to her and being like yes. hey it fucking hurt that you just pieced out and we want to help you and the fact that the game does build a narrative where at the end Part of what Aloy is saying she has learned is that she needs people to help her. Mm-hmm. And yet she just says it and it's flat. And there's yeah. no, I don't watch her struggle with that through any point that where I feel where she's saying that. Mm-hmm. And I don't need her to say it to other characters, but my God, she runs through the world talking to herself nonstop. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't one of the things she says is just like, oh, I'm really wrestling with the fact that I don't want all my fucking friends to die. Uh-huh. And like, I actually care about them a lot, but I'm worried that I'm going to die or they're going to die. So I can't let myself get close to them. Mm-hmm. And Ross raised me to be like this kind of like emotionally separate, like ice box of a person. So I don't know how to deal with any of this. <laughs> Also, this I'm going to pick up this item. It's going to go in my stash. Like, can't you just fucking <laughs> say that? Like, <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, you're right. I, just yes. tell us. Just yes, tell us. Yes. I understand why she wouldn't be able to say this and articulate these things to the other NPCs, to her companions. But the developers have to give us as the players some insight to her interior life because we're supposed to be her. We see the world through her eyes. And I still don't feel after two whole games that I truly know what's going on in Aloy's head. I can Mm -hmm. make a lot of guesses based on the little pieces of subtext that I'm picking up, but I still don't feel like I truly know what's going on in Aloy's head. And I think that's a problem Mm -hmm. um, for the game at large. Let us in. Let us in, Aloy. Let let the players at least in. Yeah. Game three, (laughs) it's going to be all about trauma, uh, Aloy's (laughs) cognitive behavioral therapy sessions. Well, they need it. All the characters in this game need some fucking therapy, man. (laughs) Like, so many of them. Aloy especially, but a lot of people need some real therapy. Man, Mm -hmm. wow. So, Spencer, what do you think? Should people play this game? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's just for the visual richness, the depth of the world, the, I mean, the absolutely gorgeous masterclass in what npcs can look and sound and feel like um i think too for all of the um just all of the richness of what's available the diversity of type of gameplay you want to have like um there's so much exploration and then there's uh like like the far cry style um like tactical invasion there's big battles there's collecting uh relics and like so it's like no matter what type of experience you want from an open world game you can get it with this one um 
And yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, also a really exciting sci-fi world. Like I'm someone who loves speculative fiction and stories about the future. And um, it's, it's a really, it continues to be a really cool story and just really cool and unique um, characters. And so I definitely think um, it's, it's a great option to play if you're not into um, Dark Souls. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I agree 100%. I do think, you know, we're not going into spoilers in this episode, but as the person on the podcast who has fully finished the story, I will say that the narratively, the game makes some end game decisions that definitely have me scratching my head a little bit with where the narrative goes. It's not enough to ruin the game for me, for sure. I think this game is, you know, the sum of its parts outweighs the handful of decisions that I sit here and go, mm, really? Um, and I, I definitely think it's worth playing. I think it, I think it's a gorgeous game. I think it's absolutely so impressive what they've achieved. I just, yeah, it just think back to like something, even something like Skyrim Mm -hmm. and like where we're at now today Mm -hmm. in terms of open world and what that can look like that just the fidelity of the open world. I continue even after 80 plus hours in to, to find myself just pausing to look at the scenery. And Mm -hmm. I know graphics are only one aspect of a game, but my God, like this game is just such a visual treat yeah and and that does influence my overall experience of it i'm just constantly looking around and going wow mm. and especially you know in the scale and scope mm. of the creatures that you can encounter the areas that you can discover the variety of things that you can get into in this game and on top of that i think overall the companions and, and npcs and and dialogue that the game presents you with and the narrative arc that it presents you with i think are 95% really solid. Yeah. Really good stuff. Um so yeah, Horizon Zero Dawn was one of my favorite games of all time. I fully expect for Ben West to end up on this list too. And I'm so ex- you know, I'm, I was telling Spencer earlier, I really hope we get some DLC later this year yeah. like we did with the first game that'll drive me back in and get me to clear out more of those map markers. I just I had so much fun with this game when I wrapped it up last night. I kind of took like a final trip around the world <laughs> victory lap uh, victory lap i took a final trip back to my base um and had a final conversation uh with a character that i liked and just kind of sat and looked out over the mountains for a little bit and just took it all in and was like uh-huh. man that was a good fucking game experience that's so lovely <laughs> it was it was really lovely so go check out horizon forbidden west if anything we've said has made you interested in this game I do imagine we're going to end up doing that spoiler cast because I cannot wait to talk to Spencer about the narrative (laughs) uh, decisions that they make in this game. So keep an eye out for that if that's something you're interested in later. But we'll probably just drop that as its own thing uh, so that uh, you don't have to engage with it if you don't want to. (laughs) But I think now it's time to move over to our interview for today. Our guest is streamer, content creator, and community builder, Queerly B. B uses cozy simulation games and conversation to facilitate discussion about the community values of identity, equity, and authenticity while striving to create a streaming experience that is accessible to neurodivergent and sensory sensitive folks. Spencer and I chatted with B about their background in education and how that led them to streaming during the pandemic, the ableism that exists in the traditional model for achieving success in online spaces and their efforts to add a sensory-friendly tag on Twitch and push for greater awareness and visibility for disabled creators on the platform. 
B was a lovely guest and is just a really kind and thoughtful presence. We really enjoyed our time with them, and I'm sure you all will too. So without further ado, here's our interview with Really B. guest and thank you so much for joining us in the virtual pixel therapy studio to start can you share your name and your pronouns hi my name is b also known on the internet as queerly b and my pronouns are they them and b how do you spend your time oh how do i spend my time so many (laughs) different ways i feel like i don't know but um as of recently lots of time um setting up unpacking i just moved um Lots of time streaming. I am a streamer. That is um, my pretty much my full-time gig. I do have one other side gig that I do, but lots of time streaming and gaming and editing, uh, as is the content creator life, um, <laughs> snuggling with my lovely partner and our cat, Donuts. Oh, Donuts is the best name for a cat. That's a great name. <laughs> he might scream in the middle of the interview, and if he does, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. We want his thoughts. It's, yes. yeah. it's all important. He, <laughs> he tends to have a lot to say, especially when his two dads are in separate rooms, which we currently are. He does not care for it, and he does like to scream to let us know that he does not care for it. I mean, he's got to make his feelings known. When you're that small, you've got to scream, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Truly. <laughs> And B, you mentioned streaming, gaming. Um, What is your personal history with gaming? It's interesting because I am one of, I'm sure I'm not the first person who has told you this, but I am, in terms of gaming, consistently a product of the pandemic. Mm. Um, My, you know, prior to this period of my life, um, I lived at home before college and my parents were both addicts. So um, as a kid, I didn't really get a lot of opportunities, both financially, but also just because I was very focused on trying to get myself out of that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I spent a lot of time very headstrong focused on I was going to do really well in school and I was going to get into college and that was going to be my way out, my ticket out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that didn't leave a lot of space for like, you know, just joyful things of just like playing a game that has yeah. no like impactful purpose on the world. I mean, little Mm. did I know back then that gaming could have a very impactful purpose on the world. But um, at the time, you know, I just perceived it as something very fun and very chill to do. And I didn't really have time for fun and chill things in my mind. Mm So um, once the pandemic hit and we were working from home and then for a while I wasn't working, I had way more free time and I kind of found myself in the Twitch sphere uh, Mm. versus a viewer and then slowly integrated myself way more than I ever would have imagined also as a creator and making friends and consistently gaming on and off stream. Um, And so that's, yeah, that's kind of how I uh, got involved. It wasn't until like basically the last two years that I would consider myself like a gamer full time. It's it's really amazing to hear that gaming and, and your relationship with it is something that you were able to foster quite recently, like just over the course of the pandemic that it provided that opportunity. And that, I mean, you jumped right into streaming, um, something that I think uh, takes a lot of courage and um, like strength. And I'm just curious, like what inspired you to take that leap from um, you know, just starting to kind of renegotiate your relationship with gaming or or sort of rediscover it um, or discover it for the first time. Um, like what led you to even take that further into streaming itself? Well, I definitely found myself in 
smaller communities that as a community member, I was really enjoying the presence of that streamer and the presence of the people in that space that they Mm -hmm. had curated. Um, And it was like a really, it felt like a really special type of thing that you don't really see in a lot of other spaces. And that like, I was really thinking heavily about my career path at the time I was in education. That was like quite before Mm. I started and anyone who really knows anything about the education field um, during the pandemic has been pretty rough, both like in terms of, you know, job hunting in terms of, um, I mean, teachers have never really been paid appropriately um, or fairly for their work in general. And also um, just, you know, um, the circumstances in which educators were trying to serve students with very minimal resources that Mm. accounted for the new reality that we were living in. And so I myself was trying to figure out, you know, there were aspects of education that I loved. That was the community building. It was the supporting of the students. It was, you know, kind of storytelling. And all of a sudden I was introduced to this new space in which I could do all of those things um, with a lot less red tape, right? Mm. Than you find in the education realm. Like I can still have very important conversations about things that I care about and I could still build and foster community and support people within that community as a content creator, as a streamer, um, but kind of in my own way and and without as many restrictions. So um, that was kind of what inspired me as well as people being very kind and encouraging in the communities that I was a part of. And they were like, you should give it a try. You know, Uh, I feel like most, most streamers with a good head on their shoulders whenever someone wants to kind of join in that realm. They're like, yeah, like give it a go. See if you like it. Um, and the reality was I liked it a lot more than I ever expected. And it <laughs> is now kind of the trajectory that I am on um, career path wise, which is wild and something I never would have expected, but yeah, I'm okay with it. We're here. We're here now. Yeah. I mean, as you're saying that, it's just occurring to me. It's like, why would anyone try to use Zoom to teach? Like, I like my teacher friends are just like, um, you know, it is exhausting um, just trying to perform for a sometimes up to 90 minutes straight at a time to just a wall of black screens. Like, no mm. engagement, no um, uh, validation or, or any sort of feedback like no promise that anyone is even on the other side. Um, And it's like, wow, like a platform like Twitch, like it just makes sense to me that like uh, someone, I think for you, like having an educator background, I'm starting to see, you know, how you've sort of naturally taken to streaming. And I also feel like, um, I don't know, more teachers should, should be on Twitch. Like it just seems like a platform that's just so much more ripe for the kind of interaction that um, that kind of, give and take requires. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, when you do first, first first start streaming, it does feel like you're talking to no one, mm. kind of. You do have to have that capacity for a while before you build up that community to, like, be entertaining to basically no response, no, like, mm. kind of feedback. Um, but I think that it is way more conducive on the viewer side to, like, type chat than it is to ask students to for years now at this point be on zoom all day every Mm. day in their home spaces which Mm -hmm. is quite 
potentially invasive. I mean, I grew up in, like I kind of mentioned before, in a space where had I been asked to be on camera that much, like that potentially could have introduced the problems in my life to people that I wasn't ready for them to have that amount of access to me. Whereas if I went into school as a student, I could really kind of have this one space separate from my family where I got to like kind of escape that situation temporarily for like seven hours a day. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, yeah, education's in a rough spot and it's, it's hard because it's, it's a problem that comes all the way from the top down. You Mm -hmm. know, it's the teachers are doing their best. The students are doing their best, but nobody in the whole process is being given the support that they need you know, from the very top to be able to, to succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's so, uh, so true. Like, um, you know, just thinking back to my own childhood, I think having school, having a place where I could, you know, figure out who I was away from the influence or the fear of being heard or seen by my parents, like uh, figuring out my queerness, like figuring out Mm -hmm. all sorts of things about myself. Like I couldn't even talk at a high volume, like in my house, in my room. And so like just having that space where I could be who I wanted and, and also, um, you know, be around others, like you mentioned, in a controlled way, in a way where, um, you know, you have the power to to set boundaries and, and also just to um, portray or share as much of yourself as you're comfortable with um, is so important and something that I never really considered and, until now. And, 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 you know, with these uh, at-home learning, sort of bringing the camera and the mm-hmm. microphone into your space, like, that's an excellent point. Thank you for that. Um. And so back to your streaming on Twitch, um, as you've sort of alluded to, you've built a growing community on these foundations of mindfulness and care, um, something that I think is just really amazing to see. Um, And what, if you could share a little bit more about your goals as a content creator, um, like what are they and and who did you make your channel for? It's interesting because it all wraps up together really well, right? Like it is in part a space for people to explore who they are and Mm. to be able to be in community with people who are similar to them. So probably most of my community is similar to me. So there's a lot of queer folks. We have a lot of disabled folks, a lot of neurodivergent folks, um, generally a lot of like marginalized communities because those are the conversations that we're having. You know, Mm -hmm. we're looking at representation in the games that we're playing we're telling queer narratives in the ways that we're playing the games um i say all academic and formally as if it's not just like us basically shrimping over pixelated characters but um, (laughs) but you know it is um all in all it is a bunch of people kind of coming together who enjoy similar games who have similar values of equity and social justice and mindfulness and self-care. I mean, we have a command that comes through chat that I set up um, on a timer that just reminds folks that like they really are welcome to come as they are in the space today as someone who um, 
whose spoons or if you don't mm-hmm. know spoon theory energy um, really fluctuates a lot I want the people in my space to know that like if one day you have the energy to come in and be the chatter of the day you're really like talking to everyone you're hype you're excited and then the next day something happens and for whatever reason you have no chatting spoons but you still mm-hmm. want to be in company and just watch that you are more than welcome to just lurk and not say anything um, and just coexist in that space with us. Um, so that's the purpose of the space um, in terms of goals. Um, I guess it's it's so hard because I just generally want to continue on the same trajectory and continue. I think something that I would say I'm proud of myself is always kind of keeping a relatively level head in an industry that mm. is rooted in a lot of competition. It's rooted Mm -hmm. in, it's not always kind to marginalized folks. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think I just like to kind of keep my goals pretty balanced and just sort of like keep on the same trajectory that I'm on, keep welcoming more people um, and making sure that I'm doing a lot of self-reflecting along the way. I think that that has helped me a lot in terms of pausing and taking opportunities to be like, okay, what's working? What's not working? How can we make this space even more comfortable, even more inclusive of people um, and learning and continuing to grow and continuing to have my space grow with me as I grow as a person. Um, Mm -hmm. And as long as I feel like I stay on that track, then I feel pretty good about where we're at. Thanks. Absolutely. Um, and you know, you mentioned when we were first started talking about how like in the beginning, um, streaming can feel like a lot of, uh, talking into the void and sort of not getting a lot of feedback now of getting feedback back. Um, but now, you know, you, you've built a, a gr- thriving and growing community. I was wondering, like, when you look back, what do you think the turning point or turning points were for you that started, um, causing the community to grow at a faster rate? No, that's always so hard to know exactly of all the different pieces of work you put in, what actually led people to make it there. You you never really get to know that precisely, but I think it's just um, probably authentic relationship building. I mean, Mm. a lot of the base of my community came from genuinely interacting in other folks' communities, and then maybe that streamer would consider raiding me, Mm. Um, not that that was the purpose that's really important i definitely find there are people who do it with um like ingenuine goals in mind and no one ever owes you anything and it is but in terms of developing genuine friendships and then supporting each other um that definitely helps as well as um making connections within those communities as well beyond just the streamer. And so I think that that was really where it started was with community building and connections with others. And then that sort of flourished um, really positively for me as a creator in my space because they saw how I was interacting elsewhere and they were like, hmm, maybe I'll go check out what B's doing in their own space. Seems like it might be pretty cool. And then mm-hmm. that's where we found ourselves uh, kind of st- 
to start off. And then later I grew as a creator and learned more about how to actually like a more strategic plan other than just making friends, right? Because <laughs> at first that's all you, you, you know, I didn't go into streaming with the intention of making streaming a career, right? So my strategies yeah. in the beginning were somewhat different than what they are now. And now it involves like, you know, making content on other platforms um, and sharing what we do in our space more elsewhere to try to draw people in um, to engage with us and get to know us. But um, I still try to make friends with people. That's just kind of who I am as a person, very much community oriented, very much still enjoy Twitch. Even if I stop streaming tomorrow, I think I'd still very much enjoy those spaces. So um, Absolutely. It, all, it, it, it does go back to the beginning, but we've grown from there and learned more about how to strategize a little more effectively since then. So would you consider yourself to be a gamer? Is that a label that you use? It's so funny because I would definitely use the phrase like outside of the setting. But then when I saw that that was a question, I was like, I was puzzled for a second. I was like, is that a label I really want to take on? Mm. Like officially when someone asks me that, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think so. I mean, I spend enough of my time and I am passionate enough about gaming that I think I would consider myself a gamer. But I don't think it would be my primary purpose, even though that's kind of the sphere that I work in. Community organizing is definitely like it's up there for me in in place of games. And games are more like what we use as a nice like community visual as we're chatting and something mm. for us to engage with together. It's more of a, a tool than it is necessarily like the main goal. Like I definitely think there are content creators and streamers on Twitch whose main goal is focused in the gaming realm and more power to you. Um, but for me, it's more like the people in chat. I would die in a boss battle or, you know, get distracted from cutscenes 10 <laughs> times over to have a good conversation with the people who are choosing to give me their time and energy on a day and hang out with us. Um, and I do it over and over again and I would do it again, even if that mm -hmm. makes me like, quote unquote, like a bad gamer officially, <laughs> so to speak. Um, then no such thing. So be it. <laughs> then so be it, you know. So yes, and it's not my number one priority. Yeah, no, I, I love that mindset of, of games um, as tools for community building and, and um, vehicles for having conversations or sharing experiences or thinking just thinking internally using the experience of the game that you're uh that you're taking in um to kind of you know think about stuff that maybe it's sometimes hard to articulate or not always there isn't always space in normal situations to kind of have these convos um and speaking more a little bit about the games that you do play um so to name a few Animal Crossing, Stardew Valley, Genshin Impact. Um, I read in your bio that you like to use cozy simulation games um, to facilitate discussions around community values of identity, equity, and authenticity. Um, I'd love it if you could share an example of what that looks like in your stream. Um, the first game that comes to mind is The Sims. It is mm. the only game I played as a kid before I kind of found myself as... Um, fully immersing myself into the gaming realm mm. um 
very much like didn't understand back then that that kind of can brought me into the gaming world. I just thought the Sims was the Sims. Um, I don't know why I kind of separated it, but yeah, like it's like, yeah. It's, its own little thing that is indescribable. <laughs> um, because I feel like a lot of the people who play The Sims don't necessarily play other games, and mm. so it can be um, it can be that someone plays just The Sims, and that's what I was did for a long time. Um, and The Sims is such an Im- invaluable resource in terms of it is a great game to have conversations about those types of things. So um, for instance, right now we are doing what is called a legacy challenge in the Sims with my community. Mm -hmm. And it is um, where you try to go through 10 generations of a singular family. And within there, there's like some set goals for each generation that you want to achieve. And the one that we're doing is called the whimsy stories. Um, And it's supposed to be a, a kind of storytelling based one. And, Um, we like to incorporate like a lot of queer elements. So one of the generation, generation two says that your Sim basically never gets involved in a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. And it gives its like kind of whole own reason and says you finally like fall in love when you're in your elder years. And I was like, you know what? No, we're going to, this story (laughs) is ripe for an opportunity to have a ace arrow character, an aromantic asexual Mm. character who is actively choosing not to partake in romance. And I think as an ace person myself, it was like, you know, I read that in the story pretty much immediately. Like that was just the queer reading that I had of it. And I was excited to share that because I, I would imagine that, you know, and no offense to them, but a lot of like straight content creators who play The Sims are not having those conversations or showing those things. And I want, you know, other queer folks who come into my space to really feel seen and heard and validated by what we're kind of doing in game as well as the conversations we're having outside of game. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just like one example. It applies to pretty much whatever game we're playing that um, we would have those kinds of conversations and try to incorporate those thing, types of things into the storyline. But that's a more recent example that came to mind. Mm-hmm. No, that's a beautiful example. Um, it's so funny. Like, I so relate to, uh, like, The Sims was also my first game. It was, like, not 2000. It was, like, The Sims 1. I still remember the CD-ROM case that it came in. And um, I was, like, there's The Sims and then there's video games. Like, The Sims yeah. is just the thing I do on the computer. And then video games are, like, Mario Kart and uh, Super Smash Brothers Melee or like fighting games you see at the arcade. Like those are video games. The Sims is my little world where (laughs) I go to figure stuff out and like be me. (laughs) I just love that you said that. It was such a, the reason that it continues to be a great game for me to have those conversations is because as a kid, um, you know, in the same way that I wasn't really allowed, able to explore games, I really wasn't also in those set of circumstances that I was in as a kid with my parents being addicts and, you know, us not having a lot of money. And mm-hmm. I also wasn't really able to figure myself out much as a kid until I got into college and got some distance from that space. But yeah. The Sims was one secret little getaway for so many of us to explore queer relationships, to explore, you know, different um, gender presentation opportunities Mm. for ourselves and stuff. You know, there's always a little, a little like 
kind of meme. Like the parent comes in, you kind of slide the laptop down because you're playing yeah. like two because you're playing like two queer characters. With my boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, I don't want my mom to ask questions about why yeah. I'm because I don't have the answers for you yet. I just know I'm having fun. Um mm-hmm. so it holds a special place in my heart and I think in the community's heart. And uh it was kind of the kickstarting point into me having the confidence to stream in a game that I was really comfortable with and then slowly navigating into like really getting confident and comfortable and exploring other games as well. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah. Awesome. And something else um, that's really cool about your content creation is that um, you share that you focus on content that's sensory friendly and accessible to neurodivergent folks who like to body double and or engage in parallel play. Um, I was wondering, um, for folks who may not be familiar, if you could say a little bit more about um, what is body doubling and parallel play? Yeah, so um, body doubling, typically something more known in the neurodivergent communities is when two people will kind of get together. It can be more than two people, but generally double. It's like two people get together and they're doing their own thing, but together. Um, And so this was how I, you know, frequently connected with friends going up. I didn't know at the time that I was neurodivergent, but this Mm. was just my brain was already doing neurodivergent things. Um, And so (laughs) We would similarly parallel plays like two people um, engaging in some form of play separate but together, right? So mm-hmm. um, it was frequent that I would be like playing The Sims and my friend would be doing art and we would consider that hanging out together even though we weren't doing anything together. Um, and it gave us that company while also kind of um, giving us the space to kind of do our own thing at the same time. And as soon as I started getting involved on Twitch, that's exactly mentally how I think about it, right? So mm-hmm. like growing up, there would be a lot of times where me and my friends would play The Sims, but separate because it was never a co-op game, right? But we would be right beside each other. And we'd be kind of mm-hmm. like sharing like, this is what I'm doing in my game. Like, what are you doing in your game? Oh, cool. And then we go back to playing on our own. <laughs> um, and so when I'm streaming, frequently I have folks say to me like, oh, like I'm just like playing Genshin alongside you. And that's how I used to engage in Twitch before I was a streamer as well. As like, mm. if you have like a double monitor or a computer and a laptop or a phone and a laptop, you may have like streamer playing the game with you so you don't feel alone, but you're mm. also kind of playing the game on your own, like actually physically in your space by yourself. Um, and so I felt like as I grew as a streamer and as I was figuring out what I was really trying to do, that I wanted my space to be conducive for people to feel like not a pressure to perform in a certain kind of social way while they were with us and that they could simply come and coexist and vibe in the space or play their own game as they watched um, because, you know, I'm in like this niche little bubble of mostly like marginalized creators, mostly smaller communities. And we see that value and I see that missing value in like the larger streaming platform. Whereas like I can't watch a lot of streams as a neurodivergent person where there's like this person is like screaming into their microphone and there's like loud alerts going and there's like bright lights in the background. And there's just like sensory wise, sensory input wise, way too much going on for me. And I was like, Mm -hmm. if 
I'm that way. I'm sure there's a lot of other people who also feel that way, who feel a little overwhelmed when they try to watch streams like that. And that's a stream for someone like no hate towards those people. But I felt like there was like an opening for streams where you didn't talk 24 seven during the entire stream that it was okay to have those natural pauses where just some like nice soft lo-fi music was playing where Mm -hmm. the alerts were calmer, where the vibes were just much more chill. Um, And so that's what I really leaned into. And then I also saw that other creators were also looking to kind of explore that avenue of content creation. It was much more accessible to those of us who didn't have a bunch of high energy, loud pep, like vibes to give off all of the time. Um, And then um, from there, I really like wanted to advocate for it to have more of a presence. And I put a user voice out on Twitch um, and they actually approved the sensory friendly tag. And so now folks Mm. who have that goal alongside me can also label their streams as sensory friendly and neurodivergent folks who need a sensory friendly space have an easy way to search out those spaces that are attempting to create, you know, um, more accessible space. Now, granted, the thing is hard that like everyone has different accessibility needs, right? So you can't make your space Mm. necessarily sensory friendly and perfect for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, But the effort being there, I think means so much to so many in general, even if it isn't perfect. And also that the door is open for them to communicate, right? Like if one of my community members was like, Hey, just letting you know, like, I don't know, the thunderstorm flashes in this particular game are really kind of messing with me. Um, I, as a Mm. creator can then, I've opened that door for them to have the comfortability to share that with me and I can look into what are the game settings or can I switch to my just chatting screen during the, you know, see what options are there to make that game more accessible or decide maybe that's not a game for our community. Maybe that's a game that I play off stream. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think just the importance isn't always in perfecting it so much as putting the care into it and the willingness to learn and listen and see if you can make your space more accessible to more people. So as someone who is neurodivergent yourself, um, who is marginalized as a creator yourself, um, and managing a growing community and and being a content creator, um, what self-care tactics do you use to make this work sustainable for you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm not going to lie and say it's, it's easy. It's definitely not. Um, and I definitely, you know, have had to grow a lot personally over time because okay so here's the thing people may not really necessarily understand if they're not super involved in this realm is that as a content creator you rely a lot on algorithms whether you Mm -hmm. want to or not you don't really have a choice like that is the system in which these platforms are run on and as algorithms go they want more people to post more often because that works for them they make more money Mm -hmm. um is usually the the reason and as disabled creators we don't have the same amount of energy that the average able person does um 
to be able to put out content on multiple platforms like that. We don't have the same number of working hours in a day that the average able person does. So (laughs) it kind of constantly feels like you're like, you know, running on a moving platform sort of thing. Like it does feel quite exhausting sometimes and requires a lot of, um, requires a lot of rejecting the norms of what Mm. is considered the way to be successful and have a community. Um, There is a lot of ableism involved in the tips and tricks on how to succeed on Twitch Mm. um, or how to succeed as a content creator beyond Twitch. Um, It's things like you need to be consistent and consistency looks like streaming four to five times a week at the same time. And it's like, mm, okay, but for most disabled creators, our bodies are not going to allow for us to be able to have that same kind of consistency. So when I think about it, I had conversations with other disabled creators, us rethinking and reframing what consistency can look like as a consistent energy, right? If so-and-so comes back to my stream, even though I may not be able to stream four to five times a week at the exact same time, such as another creator might be able to, they know that each time they come, they get the same consistent energy. They Mm. feel welcome. They feel included. They know what to expect in that space um, and they feel safe. And that that is just as valuable of a definition of consistency as potentially being able to stream at the exact same time, this X number of days. Um, And, you know, if you are able to stream that much, maybe you can't post on other social media platforms. You know, people will give you the tips to, Post on TikTok, post on Twitter, post on YouTube, post on Instagram. Mm. At some point as a disabled creator, or even if you're not disabled, but you're in a set of circumstances, maybe a parent, maybe, um, you know, there's lots of reasons, a student that yeah. someone may not have like full-time effort that they can give towards this. Um Picking and choosing the platforms that work for you and your brain and make sense for you and not getting caught up in the should, would, could have of this is the way you must do this. Because the reality of content creation, like any artistic field, any independent field, is there is no one way to be Mm. successful. That's just, that's simply not true. There may be ways that worked for X, Y, and Z person. Um, but they may not work for you. And that doesn't mean that the way that you want to approach it isn't going to work or isn't a good strategy as well. Um, And so I guess part of my self-care is um, debunking some of that and not feeling less than as a creator just because I go about things in a slightly different way. And Mm -hmm. then also turning around and trying to forge community amongst other marginalized creators where we can all kind of remind each other of that. Because when you're getting this barrage of messages that are the same over and over and over again, um, it becomes very difficult to rewire your brain into remembering that there are a million and one ways you could approach this process and that your way is okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's like big thinking wise, you know, small (laughs) thinking wise, it's things like, being self-aware of when I feel like I'm feeling a little burnt out, taking a break, 
recognizing regardless of the effect that that might have on my analytics, that my health and my longevity and sustainability in this whole process is more important than, you know, this small week's numbers, right? Um, It allows me to continue to be a creator for years to come if I take the breaks that I need to take um, in any normal, healthy human in any normal job takes breaks. So it's okay, you know? (laughs) Um, And, and those breaks look like a lot of focusing on trying to get away from the PC because I do so much of my work in this one spot. Mm. Um, And so it's like, you know, going out into Chicago, going to a cafe, getting some coffee with my partner, maybe we'll do some board games, color, like anything we can do to kind of, you know, take space and distance. So like to say touch grass, right? Because it's so easy (laughs) when your entire world is online Mm -hmm. um, to get really caught up in the things that when you take one moment to take a step back, you realize are so not important in the grand Mm -hmm. scheme of things. Not saying online spaces aren't important Mm -hmm. and the work we do isn't important, but some of the little things that get us caught up in our head and get our mental kind of haywire those things often not as important as they feel in that high intensity moment Mm -hmm. yeah like in a field like streaming which is so rife with analytics and numbers like i can absolutely see how it can be difficult to sort of retain that humanity or not constantly get pulled into this state of self-comparison um Mm -hmm. or falling into this capitalist trap of like Mm -hmm. in order to stay relevant i need to keep producing 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 um so i think uh, it's great to um you know just try to foster that sense of balance um Mm -hmm. and of course center your health and your sustainability as most important Um, i think it's a great thing to be modeling for other content creators too I think it would be very hypocritical for me to encourage my community, right? (laughs) Like we have conversations about wellness, about taking care of yourself, about how I'll have some folks pop in and they'll be like, you know what? Like I really, I just like can't really stay today. I've got a lot going on. I don't feel that well, but I wanted to say hi. That's amazing. Thank you for saying hi. Now go away. If you need (laughs) that space, right? And if that is what I would tell them, then I have to take my own advice. Otherwise it comes Mm -hmm. across as very flat, as very not like genuine when I'm encouraging them to take care of themselves. It's like, okay, B, but like, you don't really do that either. (laughs) Right. Um, And so I think that in a world where there are so many creators, what people really are drawn to is someone who is authentic to themselves and being authentic to yourself involves a lot of breaking down of what this quote unquote expectations for success as a content creator are. It's a very weird kind of oxymoron type of situation, Mm -hmm. right? Because what you're encouraged to do, um, I think is like kind of the opposite of what people actually want to see. Absolutely. And uh, so B, earlier you mentioned um, using Twitch's user voice, um, which is for folks who may not be familiar um, it's a section of the site, and also for you, feel free to correct me if I'm missing anything here, where community members can offer ideas for new features or capabilities that they want Twitch to have, and other users can vote and leave comments, um, kind of like upvoting on Reddit to get to a point where there's more visibility and the most, uh, you know, 
visible ones uh, are actually seen by people at Twitch and they can then implement these changes. Um, that's how you, the method you went to um, uh, for the uh, sensory friendly tag that you created. And you also used user voice um, a couple months ago to highlight the fact that, um, you know, Twitch uh, regularly runs uh, sort of like front page banners on these featured campaigns to highlight uh, marginalized communities within streaming. Um, so for example, uh, Pride Month, Black History Month, um, Hispanic Heritage Month, Women's History Month, et cetera, um, among many other culturally focused campaigns. And B, um, you used Twitch's user voice feature um, to start a grassroots campaign to advocate for a disability Pride Month. And you wrote, um, you know, I've never seen one of these happen for disabled creators, uh, which I believe is a big missed opportunity. Um, so you mentioned, um, you know, your penchant for community organizing and that being really uh, a passion and, and at the heart of your content creation. Um, and like for folks who want to learn more about or understand more about what disabled uh, gamers go through, like what would it mean to you to have a dedicated Disability Pride Month? I mean, I spoke a little bit earlier about the way that algorithms work against the way that our bodies and minds are programmed or the way that we are able to engage in the world. And I think that um, that puts disabled creators at a very big disadvantage in just in terms of visibility. I think, um, I mean, it's it's common even outside of gaming, outside of Twitch, that in conversations about marginalization, um, about equity, about social justice, disability is frequently forgotten. And mm -hmm. it is a telltale sign that Twitch has this entire program where they highlight content creators of all different marginalized communities for years now. And they've never highlighted from what I know about, you know, specifically disabled creators for a month like that. I think Twitch has uplifted particular disabled creators along the way. Um, and mm -hmm. I love to see it and it makes me very excited to see. Um, but I'd like to see them match that energy with the same energy that they have for any other marginalized group. Um, just because, you know, similar to how the purpose of all of those other pride months is that, you know, those folks also struggle with, you know, visibility. The reason that, you know, I got to be on the front page for pride month was because, you know, as queer creators, a lot of times we struggle for visibility as creators and disability or excuse me, disabled folks are going through the same exact thing, but not seeing that kind of support, um, <laughs> structurally not necessarily always seeing that kind of support from our peers you know we see a lot of ableism rampant even in pretty socially aware communities um and it can be exhausting it can really feel disheartening um along the way and we really um support each other right, as a community. Um, but something bigger, I think, could mean a lot to so many, um, so many people, in, both creators who are disabled, but also viewers who um, don't see themselves in games, you know, don't see themselves in um, content creation spheres, etc. Um, so I think all of my rambles to say, I think it would have a very big impact. I don't think it would be the end-all be-all, right? I've mm -hmm. seen obviously that it's not the end all be all for other communities. Um, it wasn't for me as a queer creator going on the front page one time did not like 
all of a sudden make or break my career, right? But it is a gesture, right? Mm -hmm. It is a thoughtful gesture. We see you, we hear you, we understand that you face a lot of challenges on your path to being successful that others don't face. Um, And here is a gesture of kindness and and visibility that we can offer. Um, And it it would mean more than I think people necessarily realize. So Mm -hmm. um, I hope they see it and they hear it. It's I believe they've probably already seen it. I mean, if my user voice that got way less votes on the the <laughs> tag was seen, then I imagine my user voice that has over 1K votes um, mm-hmm. uh, on the Disability Pride Month has also been seen. Um, but the follow-up on it is, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. Um, mm-hmm. As someone who participated in, in all of the... Um, advocacy work that was happening surrounding Twitch um, earlier this year, we know that Twitch is slow to respond to concerns from marginalized creators, um, unfortunately, as are most social media platforms, as are most social systems. So Mm. um, I try to be hopeful, but, you know, maybe not too hopeful um, at the same Mm. time and continue working hard on fostering community outside of anything Twitch will offer us. And if they are willing, then it'll be like the cherry on top. Absolutely. B, it's been amazing to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, how can folks keep up with your work, follow you, be in the beaverse? In the beaverse, <laughs> in the hive. Um, yes. If if you'd like to follow me, if you'd like to get connected to our community, um, we would more than welcome you. Um, I'm mostly on Twitch at Queerly B, um, and I'm also on Twitter and YouTube. Those are the platforms I personally uh, create content on. So if you'd like to connect, then those are the best places to find me. Wonderful. Queerly B, thank you so much for joining us on Pixel Therapy. For today's session of Pixel Therapy, thank you for tuning in, and we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own. If you want more Pixel Therapy, come check us out at patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod, where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just $2 a month, plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly. If you're not up for contributing monetarily, but you enjoyed this episode, you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and following us on Twitter and Instagram at pixeltherapypod. That stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. Remember that Pixel Therapy is a happy member of the But Why Though Podcast Network, so you can support us by supporting them and heading over to butwhythoughpodcast.com. That's though with a T-H-O. Take a peek at the inclusive geek community they're building around pop culture news, reviews, and kick-ass podcasts like yours truly. And you can keep up with all of this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. Uh, This week, I'm excited to talk to you about the Trans Women of Color Collective. It was created to cultivate economic opportunities and affirming spaces for trans people of color and their families to foster kinship, build community, engage in healing, and restorative justice through arts, culture, media, advocacy, and activism. TWOCC is showing the world that there is a place where trans folks belong that our community members have a home and that we are loved and that our lives have tremendous purpose. To learn more about this awesome organization and to donate, visit www.twocc.us. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. 
We'll be back soon with some more Pixel, Pixel Therapy. Therapy. Bye-bye. Thank you.